Hello, everybody, and welcome to this month's CIO live stream. My name is Mark Anderson. I co-head the global asset allocation team here in the UBS Chief Investment Office. There are certainly enough things to talk about at the moment. So we're seeing a global economic growth picture, which is one that is slowing. We're seeing that inflation, even if it might be peaking, settling at higher rates than what we've been used to over the last couple of decades, all of which is driven by three difficult factors at the moment for investors. First of all, with the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, besides kind of the, the, the human, um, uh, say, disaster that we're facing, we're also seeing a world of investors that are not getting kind of the supplies of commodities to kind of ease off inflationary pressures. Secondly, we have a situation in China where kind of the continued spread of COVID means that we're seeing lockdowns spilling from one tier, one city to the others, most recently into Beijing, which is both giving a negative impulse to global growth, but at the same time giving potential headaches to uh, inflation due to some of the upcoming uh, supply chain issues that are emerging uh, potentially in China. Thirdly, and probably the, the biggest headache for, for investors is certainly linked around the Fed, which is very determined to get the inflationary issues under control by increasing interest rates and at a relatively strong pace as well. Uh, so all of this kind of adds to a difficult environment for investors. Unfortunately, it also doesn't mean that we can keep just cash positions because inflation rates high and that will only erode wealth, but we certainly have to be very smart in this more difficult investment environment. And who better than kind of the, the lineup of some of my smart colleagues from the CIO office around the world to help us get through some of those difficult questions and maybe also some advice for investors how to position into this type of environment. And I'm very delighted to have, first of all, uh, Solita with me, who is heading the chief investment office in the Americas. We have Nadia, who is a senior U.S. equity uh, strategist, and last but not least, kind of Fred as well, who's heading our fixed income strategy. And because we want this to be as interactive of a session as is possible, we also have a little uh, link, a little button at the lower end of your page, which will allow you to ask questions, and we'll try to take all of them up in the QA part of the session as well. And the session is overall split into two, first the public part and secondly, one for UBS clients that has uh, more uh, recommendation on the investment side. But let's get into it. And the first kind of difficult topic we want to uh, tackle is the one of the US economic outlook with kicks off on the topic of, of inflation. And maybe we have seen kind of when we go back to uh, uh, kind of the, the long term charts on inflation that we have to get back all the way to the early 80s time where we had inflation at current levels and today we're seeing a print of eight and a half percent so so help us a little bit here Salita. what is the outlook on on inflation from from here are we really peaking great uh well you know mark inflation has surprised to the upside many times not just obviously in march and we know that there is still some upside risks uh as you mentioned with the ukraine war keeping energy prices elevated and also China's COVID problems threatening the global supply chain. But yes, um, I, I would say in our view, we may have seen the peak in headline inflation numbers in March. Now, you know, we're seeing pandemic-related distortions, first and foremost, starting to fade. The long-anticipated shift to services spending is well underway, which is relieving some of that inflationary pressure on goods. 
Um, as you can see here on the left side on, of the slide, deck number, slide number four, core goods inflation declined in March and should fall sharply by the end of the year. Also, you know, starting in April, there will uh, also be more favorable comparisons in the data. Essentially, we will be comparing a normal economy with one that was reopening where prices were already starting to go up. So the high base effect that a lot of people have been talking about should slow the pace of inflation increases um, starting from April onward. Also, you know, supply challenges uh, which were adding to inflationary pressures are starting to ease in some pockets, uh, though disruptions, as we mentioned in China because of COVID, remain a concern. So far, the impact from Shanghai lockdowns uh, don't appear as severe as feared, uh, but this is also something we're monitoring. Now, all that said, um, I think, you know, we're not out of the woods yet and various risks still exist. As spending shifts to services, uh, businesses will really need to keep up with the pace of the rebound in demand. Otherwise, of course, prices will continue to rise. So that's one. Secondly, um, you know, wage increases at the current pace are not compatible with the Fed's goal of 2% inflation. And here on the same slide, slide four, on the right-hand side, uh, we show the employment cost index which grew another 1.4% in the first quarter, the biggest rise in decades, which feeds that wage, spiral, wage price spiral narrative. Right now, uh, there are almost two job openings for every one person unemployed. So we need to see a better supply and demand balance for labor. We do estimate between one and two million workers could return to the workforce as we move past the pandemic. But the risk is that if labor force participation rates do not improve substantially, um, the Fed may have to do more to reduce demand for labor in order to get that wage growth down. So in our soft landing scenario, we would see the Fed hike just enough to allow record job openings to fall to pre-pandemic levels, restoring balance and leaving a strong labor market. But in a hard landing, we would see actual unemployment levels go up. So uh, we're really focused on the wage data and job openings at this time as it relates to inflation. I mean, Julita, you brought in the, the Fed and, and we've been getting very used to the idea that the Fed is always uh, keeping our backs when we're investing into equity markets. So similar, they're easing whenever things get a bit challenging. But I mean, you're showing this very nice or difficult wage charts here on the, on the right-hand side, which is the one that the Fed is really focused on at the moment. And now we have a Fed meeting this week where the market is expecting half a percentage point of increase in the Fed funds rate. We have almost three percentage points of increases in US interest rates priced in uh, towards the end of the year. What are we expecting here? Do we think that this is likely to, to happen? Yeah, so we expect the Fed funds rate to be in, you know, two and a quarter, maybe two and a half percent range by the end of the year. So the market is pricing in a more aggressive pace of rate hikes uh, than we are at the moment. And you can see that on our slide uh, number five here. The uncertainty due to the Ukraine war and China's COVID-induced lockdowns has been uh, adding to the inflation concerns, as we talked about before, and keeping markets on edge. Now, the Fed has been talking tough on inflation. Uh, as it is really essential to keep long-term inflation expectations contained. With every hawkish statement from the Fed, 
the market keeps pricing in more rate hikes. However, uh, I think we should keep in mind that it is normal for Fed to do this at this point as they are a little behind the curve and probably would like to get the Fed funds rate to neutral as soon as possible. So it would be more important, I think, to watch what they communicate once we are closer to that two to a half percent in Fed funds rates uh, at that level. Also, uh, I think if we start to see some weakness in key indicators uh, like the payrolls, uh, job openings, and of course CPI, we believe it would provide the Fed some flexibility to move gra you know, more gradual in its approach. And we expect some of those rate hikes um, could get priced out of the market again. Right now, I think the market is in effect doing the job for the Fed. Uh, financial conditions have already tightened significantly with both interest rates and US dollar up materially in the last few months, even though the Fed has only raised rates by 25 basis points, right? Mortgage rates have climbed more than 200 basis points to five and a half percent, which also should be cooling off the housing market. I think we should also see this dynamic playing out in other interest rate sensitive sectors uh, like autos. So if these segments start to cool off, goods inflation continue to decline, and if wage and services inflation is contained, we believe the Fed may not have to hike by quite as much as uh, what's currently priced into the market. I guess what, what people are really concerned about, Solita, is obviously this, this potential ghost of a U.S. recession and obviously what that may or may not mean then for, for asset pricing. And then I guess many people got a little bit of a shock when we saw that the U.S. economy was already contracting now in, in the first quarter by, by 1.4%. So. Is this really kind of a, is this indicating where growth is going? Is it kind of a reflective picture of, of the underlying strength of the U.S. economy? Well, you, you know, I think that GDP report is, is really a good ex example of how data can be quite noisy as we emerge out of the pandemic. Um, I think you can see it on here, slide six. If you look at the GDP contraction, uh, it was caused mainly by a decline in net exports. We had a record 125 billion US dollar trade deficit in March uh, that was driven by stronger imports. Uh, and this was due to strong demand in the United States. And you know the simple fact that port congestion is finally now easing. So we should consider the decline, I think, as a, a statistical quirk rather than a recession indicator. If we look at the real drivers of the economic cycle, business investment and consumer spending, those are still very strong. Consumption increased at a 2.7% pace, uh, which was led by spending on services. The savings rate fell to 6.6% uh, uh, from 77 in the previous quarter. And you know we believe it can decline further because of <laughs> pent up savings from the pandemic. So the strong labor market, I think also provides support. Um, and from that perspective, our outlook for consumer spending is still quite healthy. Business investment was even better than expected, right? Equipment investment, which had been soft in the last two quarters, jumped 15%. So I think this is a sign of a very you know, solid, strong business cycle not necessarily one of recession. So, you know, I wouldn't read the negative growth numbers too literally. The Fed is unlikely to alter its plans because of this reading. If anything, the underlying strength in consumer and business spending allows the Fed 
to stay focused on inflation. In our base case, um, you know, we have, you know, we, we think Fed will manage to avoid a recession over the next 12 months. It just needs to cool demand enough so that the supply and demand forces in the economy are more in balance. However, of course, as we reiterated several times, we do acknowledge that the Ukraine war and China's zero tolerance COVID policy will make the Fed's job very challenging. And the risk of a hard landing certainly has increased. But as you know, it's not, it's not our base case at this time. Thank you so much, Solisa. I think that was super insightful. Uh, now let's move into the part in terms of what this may or may not mean for investment positions. And first of all, Nadia, let's let's go to you on, on this one. I mean, it's certainly been a, a tough year for most markets, most sectors. Uh, the one that has probably been hurt the most has been kind of the growth-oriented, uh, uh, some of the tech names with little profitability. And this comes on the back of a decade where we've really seen growth doing very well. And we are now starting to talk about uh, value. So can you talk a bit about why we think that value might actually do better than growth as we move forward? Yes, Mark, you know, but I think we have to take a, a moment to really look back to the forward looking into context. As you noted, the, the last decade was really a period of lackluster economic growth, low inflation and low bond yields. It was also a period of great technology advancement and adaption, uh, a decade really of disruption. Uh, you know, we've seen the smartphones, we saw social media, streaming, e-comics, etc. All of these were really tailwinds to growth stocks that really helped growth to outperform significantly value stocks. You know, in fact, when you look at the past 10 years, uh, the global growth stocks actually outperformed value stocks by about 120%. And the valuation premium, as you can see, the gap between growth versus value, as you can see in the chart here, really widened to extreme levels. Um, we think that the mean reversion process uh, is now underway. Uh, the valuation gap is narrowing and we think that they will further narrow and that will drive value outperformance. Also, you know, in this inflationary environment and a uh, period of high inflation and uh, higher interest rates, uh, historically that tends to favor value investing, uh, particularly when you're in an expansion or recoveries. But, but Mark, even if in a recession, which we don't see on the horizon, um, when inflation is above 3%, value tends to outperform growth. You know, in fact, when you look at the historical data all the way back to 1975, in periods where you saw inflation above 3%, you know, value tends to do better than growth, no matter what stage of the business cycle you're in, whether you're in recovery, recession, slowdown, or, um, or um, expansion, value does better um, when inflation is high. You know, and furthermore, um, as we know, as you mentioned, growth stocks uh, tend to be longer duration assets. So as bond yields move higher, so does that discount rate that's used to value the future cash flows for growth stocks. And so that tends to put more downward pressure on valuation multiples uh, for growth stocks versus uh, value stocks. You know, as we know, many portfolios have been over-indexed value and under-allocated, over-indexed to growth, excuse me, and under-allocated to value. And that has served them very well over the last decade. But Mark, we really think the tides are turning here and investors who are underexposed should really add to those longer-term positions in value stocks. 
Makes so much sense to me. And when you look at this kind of uh, PE dispersion here between growth and value, I think it is just a, it's a time for comeback of some of those companies that were not so sexy, but just in a higher interest rate, high inflation environment should be doing better. So uh, that's certainly an exciting area. Let's talk, I mean, we were talking a bit about Ukraine before as well, Nadia, and, and I guess what it's done, it's shifted some companies focus a bit in favor of security and, and safety over kind of a pure price and efficiency uh, consideration. So, so what do you think this, this might mean for investors? Yes, Mark, you know, as you noted earlier, the humanitarian crisis is, is quite devastating in Ukraine, but it does, re the, the recent, recently we have shifted our base case on the war in Ukraine to a more pessimistic one. You know, the conflict seems like it's going to last longer. Uh, you know, Russia has moved to weaponize its gas exports and additional uh, European countries like Finland and, and Sweden are potentially looking to soon bid to join NATO. Uh, the war has certainly um, lasting changes to the face of security and, and definitely has implications in areas ranging from energy, food, cyber, defense, and, and the climate. Uh, we really think that spending will meaningfully increase and accelerate some of the secular trends that were already happening in these areas. You know, we expect Europe to really reduce its reliance on Russian oil and, and gas significantly throughout this year. Uh, there are plans to be energy independent from Russia in the coming years. To do that, Mark, that's going to require increased investment in energy infrastructure, uh, liquefied natural gas, alternative energies, um, you know, including areas of green tech and carbon reduction. And also, Mark, you know, cyber attacks, nothing new here, but their frequency and their scale continues to increase. And governments around the world are really urging companies to be even more vigilant in the, the current environment. You know, they are putting policies in place to further strengthen um, cybersecurity strategies. Uh, in the U.S. alone, uh, the U.S. 2023 budget proposal includes $11 billion specifically to enhance uh, cybersecurity uh, efforts. Now, in terms of food, we know the, the Black Sea region is the breadbasket of the world. And the war, you know, is disrupting the farmlands and also fertilizer production, really causing prices here to spike. This is threatening the food supply, not only in Europe, but also in, in Asia and Africa that really relies on grains in these regions. You know, I think that this further shines a light on the need to improve local food production and agriculture yield to really ensure food security. And, and, and Mark, we're also seeing global military budgets increase. Uh, governments are really looking to modernize, but of course also those of their allies. And so Mark, the complexion of security, what it means, the cost has certainly changed and has wide ranging investment implications. That's certainly uh, a very, very interesting, fascinating topic for all of us, obviously an area where we have kind of investment themes focused on as, as well. But just now as we're about to dig a bit further into the uh, investment recommendations part and also focus a bit on some of the hedges we can think about, we'll be uh, tuning out of our LinkedIn part of the session. So thanks so much for those of you that have joined in there uh, as well. And with that, we now uh, go over to kind of more the internal part only for UBS clients. And here we're going to 
uh, stay with you, uh, Nadia. I think you have many things to, to share with us, and we're just getting warmed up here, so thanks so much for, for that. And, and what I'd really love to do is kind of pick up a bit on where Sulisa, she left us a bit before as well, and it's kind of high inflation, higher rates environment where we have to think a bit about portfolio uh, hedges as, as well. And, and to some extent, it's a bit perplexing because markets are down, there's a high volatility, but at the same time, we're still seeing kind of a decent first quarter earnings season in the US where companies are telling us, well, it might not be as bad as kind of as the, the Bloomberg is, is kind of uh, telling us. So, so, so what are the sectors, Nadia, that you're looking at that you find most attractive and where valuation might not be as stretched as in some of these kind of tech growth oriented companies? Absolutely, Mark. Uh, you know, as you noted, the volatility in the market, you know, suggests something differently because, you know, ongoing first quarter earnings season here in the U.S. and the forward guidance has been quite decent. Of course, you know, there's been some high profile misses, particularly in tech and tech enabled, but many of those are related to supply chain disruption, you know, increased competition. And we are seeing some evidence of pull forward of revenues uh, into 2022 for some of those early pandemic winners. But I, I think it's important to highlight, Mark, that in general, earnings have been okay. 80% of companies are beaten uh, by aggregate of about 3%. And I think what's encouraging is analyst expectations for the full year has been remained fairly uh, resilient. And so in this environment where you're seeing high inflation and rising uh, rates, uh, we, we do believe that a more balanced approach is really warranted. Uh, the earnings season further confirms that for us. So having some cyclical exposure to areas like energy um, that provide some uh, hedge against inflation and some more defensive exposure to a sector like healthcare that um, also has some growth characteristic. I say both of these uh, sectors, Mark, energy and healthcare has undemanded valuation. Uh, you know, there's been some concerns around China lockdown um, and somewhat that being pressured on oil prices recently. But when you look at the oil market, supply still remains quite constrained. And, and, you know, we see Brent oil prices being sustainable at around $115 per barrel for much of the rest of this year. And so this should help support uh, energy equities, uh, which we believe right now, Mark, is pricing in an oil price at around $70. That's much lower than spot and even the two-year strip. But beyond that, um, we continue to hear from companies this earnings season, uh, their commitment to capital discipline and improving shareholder returns. And also, I would say, you know, globally, um, pharma remains attractive. Uh, you know, it's trading at about a 10% discount to the broader market. Uh, healthcare really ticks a lot of those boxes, Mark, that I think that investors are looking for in this environment, that stability of earnings in and out of recession, um, the visibility in the sector is improving. And there's also innovation uh, with the secular growth trends that we have been highlighted that we like, and also overall valuation is reasonable. So those are two sectors that we would look to continue to add to um, in this market. Well, that sounds all very exciting. So I both get the investment case for it. It's exactly what you want to own, and you get it at a significant discount to the rest of the market. So what's not to like here? So that makes sense to me, Nadia. Maybe before we let you go and jump over to Fred, I'd be curious about kind of how you think about 
maybe more uncorrelated or diversified things as well. So I'm terribly sorry. I think we just have Nadia on one last one here as well before we jump to 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 Fred, even if he's he's looking good here on the on the screen. Um, if 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 we have kind of a world where correlations are, are moving higher, do you have some thoughts, Nadia, how we might be able to diversify a bit towards kind of alternative uh, investment areas? Yes, uh, Mark, as you, as you noted, we've seen bond and equity correlation move up quite a lot in recent times. Um, but I think also the recent volatility in the market is a great reminder for the importance of diversification because that can help limit the impact of drawdowns. You know, exposure to alternative investments could definitely help that. And really, we truly think that deserves a place in portfolios, particularly for those investors who can tolerate uh, illiquidity over longer term horizons. So within the UBS Wealthway framework, that fits really neatly into the longevity and legacy buckets. Some hedge funds, as we know, strategies, they're specifically designed to be able to navigate and outperform uh, in volatile and falling markets. Um, they're able to short uh, securities. You know, I would also say mark private markets, uh, direct State, uh, uh, real assets can also help hedge against the high inflation that we've been talking about. I think a way to generate yield is through, you know, core real estate, core infrastructure and direct lending. So loans to middle market and lower middle market companies. Uh, uh, and lastly, uh, Mark, from a thematic standpoint, you know, this uh, we continue to prefer um, digitalization, healthcare, as I highlighted early, earlier, and also um, energy transition. Great, Nadia. Now, um, let's move on to, uh, to Fred then. Uh, Fred, it's, uh, it's been a challenging time to be a head of fixed income investing in a world of, of, of rising inflation and, and, and rates. And, and I don't know, the, the sell-off looks to be magnitudes of almost of what we're seeing on, on the equity side. So, so much for, for fixed income here. But, but joking aside, I guess we've been trying to shield our clients through kind of floating rate uh, type instruments like like senior loans has been a preference for long. We've been kind of underweight, uh, higher rated bonds, uh, a few months back also investment graded bonds, I think successfully so. And I guess now we're starting to flip that and basically saying, well, with these higher yield levels, we might need to think about some of the opportunities that might be coming in fixed income as well. So why don't you tell our clients a bit about this one, Fred? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. Look, I, as, you, as you said, as you touched on, I, I don't think it's an understatement to say that it's been an incredibly difficult year for fixed income investors. Um, for certain fixed income segments, it's actually been the worst sort of performance historically on record. Um, the catalyst obviously being um, the pricing of rate hike expectations from central banks. With those repricings, we've seen interest rates across developed market yield curves rise between 100 to 200 basis points. Um, in addition to that, we've seen spill, spillover into credit spreads that have also widened. Now, the good news or the silver lining is as of where we sit today, we think there is obviously a lot more opportunity and a lot more value in fixed income. And with that, we think um, clients or investors can, can naturally sort of recoup some of the losses that they've experienced thus far uh, this year. So as, as you touched on a year ago, we recommended um, for our investors to, to switch into loans as an asset class and use the sort of long duration fixed income segments to, to fund that trade. And the rationale at the time was 
loans, floating rate asset class, no interest rate sensitivity. We had a view that interest rates were moving higher. And secondly, at the time, we saw corporate fundamentals improving. So that would benefit high beta credit segments such as loans. Now, as of today, as I said, um, a lot has changed and we think the two drivers of that trade have essentially run their course. So we are recommending to investors to take positions back to strategic allocations, but that doesn't mean they should just be sitting there doing nothing. Um, as Salida showed earlier, we think when we look at the front end of yield curves across developed market rate complexes, rate hike expectations are pretty fully priced. So with that, we think it is starting to make sense for clients to start inching a little bit out the yield curve and starting to seek a bit of yield in things like short duration EM credit or investment grade credit. Um, we've also like European credit. So a lot has already been said about the war in the Ukraine. When that erupted, um, we essentially saw European credit underperform not just US credit, but even European equity. So we think there's a relative value trade to be had there. Now, the beauty of fixed income, which is on this slide on your screens at the moment, is that the asymmetry in fixed income is back. And what I mean by that is it wasn't that long ago where we had a world with about 16 trillion US dollar equivalent of debt sitting at negative yields. That meant that just to hold fixed income, it cost you money. Now with these moves in interest rates, you're actually getting yield. You're getting compensated to hold fixed income, which is fantastic. So if nothing happens, you make money. Now the asymmetry element comes into it because a lot of bonds are trading at deep discounts to par. So you have a pull to par effect and you have positive convexity as well. So good yield, good carry, positive convexity, we think has brought asymmetry back, which provides a good opportunity in fixed income as well. Cool. Well, that's exciting to be in your asset class now with some positive returns finally. So that's exciting. Another place that we saw like uh, extraordinary returns has been kind of commodities. We've been talking about commodities. We've had all sorts of different positions in our portfolios for, for clients, everything from commodity currencies to uh, energy equities, um, uh, several typical kind of commodities. Can, can you talk a bit about this one, Fred? Because I know kind of typically we talk about it as a, as a good hedge against geopolitical kind of risk, but do you think it will be continue to be a good hedge in this kind of environment? Yeah, sure. So, so, so Nadia touched on this a little bit when she talked about diversification, and I guess the first and simplest argument to hold commodities in a balanced portfolio is that they do offer good diversification and uncorrelated returns to your traditional sort of bond equity relationships. Um, and the reason they do that is because they typically have unique performance drivers based on fundamental factors around supply and demand. So things like weather, seasonality, production, investment, and as you just touched on, geopolitical risks. So at the moment, we're in a very heightened geopolitical risk environment with the risks around sanctions and disruptions to energy flows. So on that basis alone, we think commodities from a asset allocation point of view do make sense. 
Secondly, and as this chart shows, uh, in, in regimes where you have very high inflation, as we're experiencing at the moment, you can see historically commodities have also done well. So Salida so talked about this a lot. We, we do expect inflation is peaking very soon, but it is going to remain elevated. It is going to take time to come back down to some of the more normal levels that we've seen in the past. So on that basis, with elevated inflation and also incredibly high inflation uncertainty, um, we could be wrong of course, wages could continue to go up. We think, to answer your question, commodities still provide a decent hedge for these risks. That sounds great, Fred. Thanks so much for, for that. And, and now we've kind of concluded, I'd say, kind of the, the main three parts of the section. We are at the half hour mark. So for those of you that would like to tune out, then obviously feel free. We have gotten a tremendous amount of questions. I think we might just take one or two of them for those who want to stay another few minutes on online with us. And I think the, the first one, Solita is probably the one that is the dearest to most of our clients, the one that I, I picked up here, uh, which is a question from, from a client basically asking, how should we navigate kind of a period of heightened uh, volatility and also one in which we might have kind of a significant market downside with us. So uh, I, I know you have, you have many thoughts on this one, Solita. So maybe I, I put this one to you. Thank you, Mark. Look, we always ask clients to stay invested through the ups and downs of the market, which, to be honest, is, uh, of course, easier said than done. Um, after all, you know, it is very difficult to keep emotions uh, out of your decision making when you see a portfolio um, in the red, right? Uh, but this is precisely why uh, we have developed a framework, um, which we call UBS Wathway, and it is really important. Having this liquidity, longevity, and legacy strategies in place, I think helps uh, an investor reframe losses relative to the time horizon of uh, your goals and objectives, right? So the liquidity strategies, I think, are particularly important during times like these, um, because obviously, you know, that, you know, in the time of market stress, which, you know, of course, consists of cash, uh, bonds and borrowing capacity needed to meet your spending needs for the next three to five years. And once you have the confidence that your near-term expenses are met, then you know, you're in a much better place, much better position to look through volatility and avoid making panic decisions. I think selling in a bear market actually tends to lock in temporary losses since you have to try to both sell and re-enter the market at the right times, which uh, is almost near impossible. So I believe if clients have the right foundation in place and they're sticking to their Wafway plan, their financial goals should remain intact uh, without having to try to time the market. So I think the goal, uh, having the right infrastructure is, is the most important thing. Thank, thank you, Solita. Um, there's one question here, just, I, I cannot skip it. So I guess it's on the tech sell-off. This one goes to you, Nadia. Uh, we're talking about value. I, I guess we haven't been too excited about the growth names, but there must be some opportunities that are kind of popping up here and there, Nadia. So, so what would you be looking at right now if you were an investor? Still a bit excited about some of, some of these areas. Yes, Mark, to, to keep it simple and short, I think the key word here is quality. quality. 
focus on quality tech companies that have strong free cash flow generation, as well as those that are able to return some cash to shareholders through dividends and buybacks. Or say thematic wise, we continue to like the ABCs of tech, so artificial intelligence, big data, and cybersecurity, as well as um, 5G automation and robotics. So while we are broadly neutral on tech, we do think that there are select opportunities within the sector. Thank you so much, Nadia. And maybe with that, I'd love to conclude on on the final question we got in. It was like the first one that popped in here on the on the screen. And the question was basically where to invest for the first time in such a market. And that can obviously seem like a very daunting task. And I think maybe the, the, the first place to start is to say that if you're investing with a bit of a longer perspective into the topic that Solita introduced of the UBS wealth way, and we dare thinking a few years out, but even typically a bit more when we are planning for uh, our, our financial situation, we note that we have positive expected return on, on kind of our diversified portfolios. And diversification is really important. So even if you might see uh, a potential setback as we have uh, over the short term, there's really kind of a mid to long term case to be made where you're seeing significantly positive returns, particularly if you're staying invested and well ahead of inflation and certainly well ahead of uh, cash at a time where inflation is well above what you get if you put just money on in, into cash. What we'd also say is that in an environment kind of, of of maybe slowing growth and even if inflation might also be slowing, it's, it's a period of elevated inflation relative to what we've been getting used to. So it is an uncertain time also with interest rate increasing. It means you need to be globally diversified. That's both across markets, sectors, currencies, uh, etc. And it means that you need to focus on those areas that are a bit cheaper valued. We talked about the value-oriented uh, companies very specifically. Uh, we certainly look at them, particularly in areas like energy. Uh, we're thinking about UK stocks as an example. And when we move into the currencies and we're talking about hedges, something like the US dollar has been very prominently positioned in our portfolios as an advice to our clients over the past year. We also like something like commodity currencies, broad commodity exposure as well. And then last but not least, certainly to diversify into alternatives at a time where correlations between traditional asset class are very high. That's both in the private market space, it's within commodities, uh, it's hedge funds, etc. All of the things that we would be recommending in a very diversified way. And with that, first and foremost, thank you for all of our clients uh, and colleagues for tuning in to this CIO live stream for this month and obviously for my dear colleagues that were shedding, I think, a lot of knowledge into this, this call here as well. So thanks so much for, for tuning in and we'll uh, look forward to continue this conversation next month. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.